Welcome to the Swampflex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Boomer. Hi, I'm Allie. And we are three friends who recommend and discuss movies among each other as the world crumbles around us. This week, Allie is experiencing the apocalypse on the front lines. The heat dome. That's what they're calling it. <laughs> wow, we had a golf blob last week. These are two terms I've never heard before. <laughs> I think meteorologists are giving up. <laughs> they're just quitting. They're like, I don't know, it's a blob. It's kind of a dome. <laughs> At least the end of the world is mildly entertaining in the way we have to describe things that are happening. Yeah. Has there been a heat dome before since you've moved to Portland? No. This is new. Yeah, this is new. We had a 116 degree day yesterday, and that is the hottest it has ever been in Portland in history. So far. <laughs> oh, don't say that. God damn it. Don't say that. I mean, um, yeah, I, I shouldn't know. be so pessimistic, but yeah. Anyway, that's my life, the heat dome. The golf blob was uh, not a tropical storm, but it was a tropical event where there was just a clog of like bad weather that was just spitting things at us for like <laughs> a week. <laughs> it's still kind of doing it. And I don't, I don't remember that ever being a thing before. That feels entirely new to me as well. So are you in like a, a wind cone there and where you are, Boomer? This was a very wet early summer for us this year in Austin, but that's mostly settled down, although we did have a few like flash uh, storms today. But, you know, when I say storm, I think like just, oh, it rained, not in the sense of something catastrophic. So <laughs> uh, as far as that goes, I really don't have a lot to contribute to this particular recitation of misery but i'm sure i'll have some soon <laughs> <laughs> or we'll all be moving into your condo yeah. that's the other option yeah everybody come live in my 683 square feet have you been watching movies in that tiny space uh no talked? i haven't no. at all no. not, Amazing. <laughs> not a single one since we last spoke throwback episode Whoa. yeah i know the only thing that i have watched is back around as far as movies go i've just been watching the x-files but i am in a headlong rush to very soon be able to talk about the x-files movie as we have now entered season five i will tell you that i have i have not watched the movie so maybe we'll just have to do a specific whole episode Ooh. <laughs> i really liked it as a kid but i have no idea if it's actually good I remember the merchandise. I remember the unnecessary amount of ruffling on the Mulder and Scully X-Files Fight the Future movie action figures. They were like eight inches, which were bigger than most of them. Maybe they were seven inches. And they were wearing just like, you know, their business clothes, which is what <laughs> Scalder and Mully wear. But I guess the toy manufacturers were used to like putting a bunch of Liefeld pockets on everything. So everything just is really unnecessarily ruffled. Like they look like they've been through it hot. They've been through it bad. I feel like my grandma has one of those somewhere in her house. So I'm going to have to go find it. Is your grandma a big sci-fi nerd? No, she just likes the X-Files or liked. I mean, maybe she's a big sci-fi nerd. I don't know. I just remember watching a lot of X-Files with her like late at night as a child and just being super freaked out. I'm still enjoying this, which is technically my first full through rewatch. And there have been plenty of things that even as an adult, I'm like, oof, yikes. I bet this was scarring. I also often find yeah, myself saying, wow, that looks expensive, which is my other thing about the X-Files. The last thing I'll say is I... I you know, Kat is sort of driving this X-Files viewing experience. And I mentioned some time ago that whenever I thought about the X-Files, my first thought was always of the image of, like, people driving Fords at night. And so now, anytime we're watching it, I'm like, oh, that's a Lincoln. Anytime it's not a Taurus, <laughs> I have to point it out. <laughs> but my other major impression of the X-Files was um, came from watching or not watching, that implies some sort of intent. But uh, coming across various Skulder X Mully, Skulder X Mully, Mulder X Scully fan music videos. I don't know if y'all remember when this was a big thing, but 
fandom, you know, when they had a big ship, they used to make like music videos set to things like, you know, some bad emo song by Taking Back Sunday, but it's like, you know, guitar riff and then some really, you know, over the top lyrics, but, you know, it's Mulder touching Scully's face or her like hugging his jacket, right? These are like fan edit clips of the show in like montage. Is this correct? Yes. Yeah. I remember the the Dark Ages. Yes. I remember more when it was a Buffy Angel uh, thing or a Buffy Spike thing, if that was what you preferred. But there was a time when YouTube was just full of like people making fan edits of things. I remember even early on in Community, there was a fan edit of like, Joel McHale and Allison Breeze characters that was set to Sarah Burrell's Gravity, which was eventually <laughs> even referenced in the show. And I, every time now that we're watching the show and there's just this meaningful shipper moment, you know, Mulder touches Scully's face or whatever, I do like a, and the reason is you. <laughs> and the reason is you right because it's like oh she's she just keeps being like your brain is broken and i guess she's right but that's all i have to say about what i've been watching it's been a lot of the x-files and um bad x-files music videos because i can't uh, now that i remember them i'm seeking them out and cat will not be party to this expedition they don't fascinate (laughs) her at all from like an anthropological or pop cultural or scientific standpoint she's just like these are bad make it stop or i'm leaving i respect that as like a kind of diy cinema yeah that uh some like nerd is like obsessing over because those take effort it's like you just slap it together you know right so much time uh (laughs) i appreciate your uh techno archaeology that's what i'm gonna call it (laughs) thank you (laughs) Are you going to read uh, any fan fiction next? The slash fiction? Well, it wouldn't be slash, right? Unless it's Mulder Crycheck. And yes, I will. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought the slash fiction thing was literally just the porno. I always associated slash fiction with like erotica. It is, but it's not het erotica. Oh, I mean, okay. I thought I mean, it was I guess just like anything be. that wasn't canon. I I don't know. My we need an expert. <laughs> my understanding is that slash, at least in its origination, was for non-het pairings, and then from there, it just sort of became part of the larger vernacular. So I'm sure that it may have been co-opted by uh, not queer storytelling, by heterosexual storytelling. But my understanding of it, as I've always understood it, is that Slash is, is for gay. So we need the smoking man kind of like doming Skinner. Yeah. Oh, okay. First of all, no one doms Skinner. I have seen him <laughs> with his shirt on. Uh, I was shocked. I was like, holy moly. And also, I, I did joke about Cancer Man and Crycheck having a thing, and Kat uh, was disgusted. So I guess it's up to me to create that and be the change I wish to uh, see in the world. I was going to say, that's not necessarily true. It might be out there. Uh, very likely. I want to believe. I don't want to squash your dream. <laughs> I actually have a I want to believe shirt, but it's like falling apart and it makes me really sad. <laughs> like Mulder, nothing will ever make me stop believing in what I believe in. Even though I really did just reach the point in the show where the uh, the guy has shown up and is like, actually, there is a conspiracy, but part of that conspiracy is to make you believe in aliens, which don't exist. But we've oh. been planting evidence so that you'll be distracted by that and not by the real conspiracy. And I'm like, oh boy, I'm I'm glad they're keeping it fresh. I'm glad <laughs> they're finding a way to, to keep me on my toes. Alia, uh, what have you been watching? Since we're just talking uh, like TV, I guess I'll start with the... Uh, TV like mini documentary series that I watched. I watched the series Sasquatch, which I don't know if y'all heard of. It's like a Hulu thing. No. Okay. So basically the premise is uh, this investigative journalist 
worked on a pot farm in the 90s in California, Northern California, and heard this story about three guys getting murdered by Bigfoot. And so he sets out, like, you know, last year or so to try and figure out what was going on. Like, was this a Sasquatch? What happened? Were these murders even real? And, you know, it goes into a lot of stuff. It gets real dark real fast, y'all. I mean, I guess any true crime show worth its merit, like, gets real dark real fast. But um, it kind of goes from, like, talking about cryptids to the war on drugs, (laughs) you know, and, like, immigration policies. So it's one of those that starts off really kind of like goofy and then just like sidelines you with the truth. But I liked it. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I'm a true true crime person, vaguely. I'm not like creepy about it or anything. Like I just, I, I do consume a lot of it. Wasn't one of the first X-Files episodes like Giovanni Ribisi smoking too much weed and <laughs> experiencing phenomenon in the wild? Am I remembering that incorrectly? So Giovanni Ribisi plays a kid with electrical powers who gets back yes. at the people who bully him. Is he also stoned? <laughs> There's one with, um, what's his face? Uh, the redhead guy, not Carrot Top. Um, oh, Seth Green. Yeah, he has. That's what I was remembering. Yes, he has an episode where he is stoned and sees a UFO. Yeah, that's like the second one. That's like the second episode. That was yeah. what I was picturing. Yeah. Well, the real-life version sounds much sadder. Yeah, the real-life version is a lot sadder. And then after that, I watched um, the uh, Shudder documentary Scream Queen about Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Oh, the... Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Yeah. We did a podcast episode on that last year. Yeah. So did y'all watch the, the doc? Yeah, we watched the documentary. We watched the second film in the series. And we watched a small portion of the eight-hour-long Nightmare on Elm Street documentary that came out in the 2000s. It's oh so gosh. good, though, in its entirety. It's so good. I it liked what I saw. It is exhaustive, but yeah. it's, uh, it definitely has to be taken in segments. Well, I don't know. I didn't really care for this documentary. It felt very, like, VH1 behind the scenes. Yeah, the filmmaking isn't particularly strong. Yeah, it felt very made for TV, but didn't actually make it to TV sort of thing. And then, sort of entirely switching gears, I did do the thing that everybody's been doing, and I watched uh, the Bo Burnham Inside special. I thought it was way better than it should have been. I enjoyed it a lot, actually. There were a lot of emotions. You know, not all of it landed, but enough of it that I was like, I really like this. And then I told multiple people that I thought would really like it about it. So, you know, enough for me to recommend it, even though everybody's watching it anyway. That was our podcast episode last week. Oh, yeah. And I had a very similar experience where, like, maybe the first 20 minutes, I was like, this is okay. It's, like, very hit or miss. Yeah. And then by the time it stops trying to be comedy and, like... And just goes straight turns to... Turns into something else. Anxiety on screen. Yeah. And, like, weird video art. It reminded me almost of, like, Laurie Anderson by the end when he was, like, projecting... Oh, yeah layered images and like modulating his voice and i was like okay yeah it's pretty incredible he did all of this on his own like i don't care about the facts of like oh he wasn't really staying there or whatever it's incredible that somebody made all this on their own and like the lighting even when it's not great the lighting is amazing like the lighting the setup the editing like he did great on it the craft is good uh Jokes don't always land, but once it's to, like, this is anxiety and this is the inside of my brain, like, 80% of the time, I'm like, I feel things right now. <laughs> did you see 8th grade? I did not! I think you'd enjoy it. It's, it. it's a similar thing where it's like, this person really has a handle on what a panic attack feels like. <laughs> and he yeah. knows how to, like, recreate that on the screen. Yeah. Um, specifically in that one like what it feels like to be 12 years old in like a social scenario which oh god i was gonna say i i never (laughs) want to go back to that ever again maybe avoid it then (laughs) it's very good yeah yeah so i might have gone through the list that you sent out about movies that are out and i went straight from inside to watching saint maud 
which was really, it was interesting to say the least. I I still don't know if I liked it or not sort of thing. Oh, wow. Um, Like I really, I guess, yes, I liked it. I did like it. I was talking about it afterwards and what kind of was the consensus in my house was it's kind of like if you were to literally interpret like ground an actual like saint story in real life because all of those stories are just so messed up you know and they're all so like horrifying that if you were to really put it in like a reality sense this is what it is so I really really enjoyed that and that last shot still kind of scarred me I don't want to give anything away oh yeah uh, it's pretty fucked. It's very cold. Yeah. Um. I also got some uh some mild horse girl vibes. Um. <laughs> some some mild horse girl vibes, which is good. That's good. We uh we talked about that last episode as well, and I honestly had a much better experience rewatching it for that conversation than the first time I saw it. Because what I really wanted was her. And her patient having this, like, lesbian yes. back and forth, this, like, uh, Sunset Boulevard relationship. I really wanted it to be more of a persona than it was, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's more about Maud's like, weird inner life and, like, her yes. version of religion. She's just kind of making up as she goes along. Yes. I liked it more knowing that it was that the second time. Yeah. I don't think I enjoyed it as much until... The conversation I had afterwards, like, really dissecting yeah. it. And I was like, you're right. It's great. I think Boomer would dig it. Yeah, honestly. I think so, too. It's very much for anybody who's just kind of, like, jaded by a super religious background as well, which, luckily enough, my husband is. So <laughs> it was she, she perfect had a, for a him. Very specific, like, guilt, horniness, guilt, like, yes! cycle that was like, this is being Catholic yes! <laughs> for me. Yes. <laughs> And then just recently on the first day of the heat dome, the first day of the heat dome, um, when it only <laughs> reached 112, I watched Memories of a Murder. And Ooh. it was my first watch of it. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big Bong Joon-ho fan. Love all the stuff I've seen. And, whoa. I mean, this movie is so good. It's just really, really good. Um, I don't feel like I can say any more on it than has already been said. But, you know, I love how cynical it is of law enforcement and the way this case was handled and just generally society at the time and how people were viewing these cases and stuff. And also, you know, I'm like, I'm not like a history buff about it but like i know enough of korean history from that time to be like oh yeah this is also just like how messed up korea was at the time like how messed up it was um and i mean obviously with parasite like i feel like there's just the obligatory like bong joon ho crappy apartment you know i feel like that's just if you're watching one of his movies and there's not a crappy apartment what did he do wrong? Like, why is he doing this? I would even count Snowpiercer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Shitty little compartments. Where did you watch this? It's on it Hulu scary. right now. That's amazing. Yes. Check I'm it asking because, like, when he won the Oscar, they were supposed to, like, do this whole huge rollout for Memories of a Murder getting, like, restored and, like, going into wide release in theaters. Oh, um, man. I don't think it ever played wide here in the early 2000s. Oh, when it was first made. I would love to see that in theaters. Oh, I haven't seen it, and I was very excited, and, you know, COVID kind of derailed that. But Yeah, it's on Hulu. Definitely wow. check it while they've got it. I don't know if they have any of his other early movies, like um, Barking Dogs Never Bite. I don't know if you saw that one, but that one's great, too. No. Shamefully, I haven't seen any of his stuff pre-Snowpiercer. I've only seen all of the stuff since then. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Barking Dogs Never Bite is also very good. And then Memories of a Murder is just incredible. And I still haven't seen Okja. Okja. Oh, that one's great. But also Host. I feel like that would be very much on your wavelength, Brandon, especially after yeah. Godzilla stuff. That one in The Wailing, 
I know he didn't make the whale. Yeah. Like around the same time they came out, and I've been meaning to watch them. Oh yeah. Both because I know that I would like them, but like the runtime on both is like uh, <laughs> my biggest hurdle. Yeah, I know. I know you prefer the the tight ninety. So yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, which is fair. It's fair. Yeah. So that's been all of my my watches lately. Well, you mentioned that uh, that list I sent out, which yeah. I, I think I talked about in the last episode. It was basically just like everything one of us has mentioned that's like a new release from this year. And I realized when I was talking about it that that list is like very limited for me because I haven't been going to movie theaters. Like there's probably more exciting stuff there that I haven't been watching. And I haven't been paying for video on demand stuff either. Most movies I've been getting that aren't streaming releases are through the library. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's kind of interesting, like, what limitations you have on, like, what curates what you're watching. So I put in, like, library holds on new movies that aren't free streaming, and they just sort of come in randomly. Like, it's very arbitrary what I get every week. And this week, you kind of pitched this episode as, like, our version of, like, a Pride Month selection. Even though it's at the end, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I also want to come back to that because I have questions. Oh, that's that's a good <laughs> that's a good billboard for what's coming later. And I got two Pride-related movies just happenstance through the library this week. And they were just as, I think, as brutal as our main topic of yeah. conversation today as well. One was The World to Come, which is a new release. It's unfortunately timed. It's one of those white women in period costumes longing after each other and uh, delaying their like lust for each other until it all floods on the screen all in one go, um, which I think after Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Ammonite last year, I think people got very burnt out on this and wrote tons of opinion articles about how too many of these movies get made as opposed to other types of queer stories, which I kind of get, but I also like these movies individually, even though you know, I, I understand in like a big picture view, there should be other stories besides them. This one's very good, I thought. It's Catherine Watterson and Vanessa Kirby. Oh, I love her. Are on the American frontier. Vanessa Kirby plays this like very brash, kind of like devil may care woman who lets her like red curls like just flow around her shoulders. And Catherine Watterson is like way more buttoned up and has like this rich inner life where she like writes in her journal all the time, but doesn't express herself out loud. And both of them are married to like total brute nerds, like just absolute assholes who like love the Bible. (laughs) And uh, they, you know, find love. And because it's the American frontier, like both their husbands and the environment, like are so harsh and like such a like a brutal contrast to their romance, which is very beautiful and tender. And then when you finally get that release of like all of their sexual trysts um, and like all their like actual like physical passion for each other, it is in like the worst, like most devastating context possible. Really, really brutal stuff. The filmmaking is very strong. I thought, especially if you like either of those actors, I think they get a lot to do. But the other one I would actually recommend even more, um, it was this documentary called Wanarovich about the uh, artist David Wanarovich from the 80s and 90s. I don't know if y'all are familiar with him. No. Uh, I don't think so. The name isn't ringing any bells. Not for me either, when just like seeing it in text. But then when I saw a lot of his paintings and photographs and prints in this, it was like, oh, I'm very familiar with the work, just not the man. He was famous during the um, AIDS crisis in New York and did a lot of like multimedia political art, very like act up type, like aggressive in your face, confrontational in direct opposition to like respectability politics, basically being like my entire community is dying of an epidemic while the government does nothing and the blood is on your hands, like trying to wake people up kind of art. And what I liked about the movie and why I think it's very much worth watching is like a lot of movies like this that are about confrontational artists are very like kind of what Allie was describing with Scream Queen earlier. Like they're very like light in their filmmaking style. Like they're very bland and you know, you're watching all this really confrontational vivid art, but the movie you're watching is like weak tea. Uh, And in this case, most of the images on screen are, actual like paintings and journals and audio recordings that Wanarovich himself created 
So it's like trying to recreate this like propulsive, angry political activism in the art form as well as in the subject. Like it's trying to like kind of recreate that 80s, 90s um, anger and that political fury. And I think it does a decent job at it. It's not as good as his stuff. It's not like a Marlon Riggs movie or something, but it's it's pretty strong. Kind of a great wake-up call just about holding governments accountable for letting people die and not uh, providing proper health care while the people at the bottom of the ladder get shit. Uh, which, you know, very much worthwhile getting angry about that now as ever. And I don't know, good pride programming yeah. too because that celebration started as a political activist hub in the first place so I don't know bringing some anger back into that ritual I think is worthwhile as well anyway this is described as a weird western um, and, it, and it's how are you spelling the, the title the Baccarat, B A C U R A U. Baccarat, okay. Baccarat, yes, not Baccarat, not yes, sir, I can boogie. That's Baccarat. That's Baccarat, that's Baccarat isn't it? Yes, not Bert Baccarat. The, not Bert Baccarat. He's or the ba- look of love. Or, or Baccarat. Yes, sir, they can be, but a different, completely different. Okay. And believe me, that's not a mistake you want to make while watching the film. So for my pick this time, I had us all watch Baccarat because I was like, you know what? We haven't done any. Pride movies other than Godzilla, everybody's favorite queer icon. I don't remember Mothra being in that movie. Mothra wasn't, but Godzilla was. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Godzilla was still there. And so was a trash monster, so it counts. I'm going to count it. Uh, so, yeah, I decided that we should watch this Brazilian movie that, I don't know, it gets described as a neo-Western, but I, I'm over that. And... You know, it's about a town fighting back against oppressive colonial and fascist government forces. And particularly, there's a bunch of queer characters in this, I don't want to say rebellion more than struggle. Resistance. Resistance. That's the word. So yeah, I I really, really love this movie. I think the politics are amazing. All the characters are so interesting. It's just an ensemble while also having no big name actors, or, you know, at least I'm not super familiar with Brazilian actors, but I assume given the very DIY feel and Lunga, the character is actually played by a drag performer. From that area, so yeah, it, I I don't know. I guess I'm gonna open it up to y'all. Uh, I know Boomer had some questions, so let's start the Q and A. I guess I was a little curious as to what made you think of this one. I guess first as a Pride movie, because although there are queer characters in it, I, I it didn't really leap out at me. But I, I guess as the movie went on, I was a little bit like, oh right, okay. But I would like to hear your your uh, full reasoning, just for my personal oh, understanding. Oh, yeah. I was thinking it would be nice to do a movie with queer characters where the movie isn't just, hey, we're queer and here's our life. Because honestly, it gets so tiring so fast to me. Um, like, obviously, there's good examples. Like, Moonlight was amazing. But so often it's just, we need more stories. And to have a story of resistance with queer characters filmed in Bolsonaro's Brazil, to me, it just, it popped to mind, I guess, is the main thing. I guess the distinction is that the movie is about queer people, but not about their sexuality in any way. Like there are exactly. people who are doing other things than like grappling with the closet or yeah. suffering oppression in well, specifically for their sexuality, I guess they suffer oppression for different yeah. economic and social reasons. But yeah, I think you know, in a town of outcasts, that's just a whole other reason they're outcast. You know, it's not the main struggle or the main focus. I kind of get that as like a, a bigger part of what the movie is, and like 
one of the reasons it's like so hard to get your footing when you're watching this because it is strange even though the central plot is so closely tied to like the most dangerous game which is a plot we've seen in so many movies before right but, like something feels really hard to like get your bearings in this and i think it's because it's a movie starring an entire community and like a lot of the people in that community are queer and a lot of them aren't like it, it's like a very like wide range of people and they're all treated equally important and you keep kind of searching for a protagonist for like the first hour. You're like, okay, here's our main POV character. Right. And it really doesn't allow you to have that anchor ever. Like it, it really is about the entirety of the community together. And they kind of work as like a single unit. And I found that very impressive. I don't know if I, I've seen that before, at least not so purposeful where it's like a movie about solidarity and like resisting in mass. And not, you know, about one specific hero arising out of the crowd to, like, save everyone. Yeah, exactly. And and that's why I'm, like, also kind of over the whole, like, neo-Western label. Because it's not like there's this lone person who rides into town and bands everybody together to get them to fight it. It's this town, these people, standing up for themselves. They've been organizing. They've been taking care of themselves the whole time. And they continue to do it. And so, sure, there's a big shootout in a dusty middle-of-nowhere town, but other than that, I, I, I just have a hard time. It's also sci-fi. It's yes. also a drug movie. Like, everyone keeps eating these peyote yeah. buttons throughout it with, like, no commentary on that other than, like, every now and then they'll stare off into the middle distance and, like, a weird hallucinogenic image will pop up. Right. Well, I, I should say that I loved this. Loved it thought it was great i loved the world building of it i will say when that ufo shot uh showed up i just about <laughs> shit myself because of how much x-files i've been watching it's like look at that <laughs> ufo it does turn out to be just a drone but i still loved it it's such a kitschy like 1950s like plan nine from outer space type ufo too <laughs> so, like, yes. when it pops yeah. up you're like what is that doing in this environment i do not understand that in this context at all it's not even really a ufo they identify it it's it's a disc yeah. it's just a it's just a flying saucer yeah there's a lot of like really trashy sci-fi type stuff like that in this like the screen wipes and like the extreme split diopter and then Udo Kier as the villain feels like he's from a much trashier movie oh, yeah. than what you're watching. <laughs> yeah. And even the, the opening shot of the movie is, you know, looking at Brazil from outer space. Yes. Uh, and like a satellite kind of image. And then you zoom into the fictional town of Baccarat. And you kind of have that like 60s psychedelic stuff that, you know, it gets associated with like the sci-fi era, you know, especially with the Star Trek sort of theme going on. <laughs> The original series. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Ring the bell. She said it. <laughs> <laughs> she did it, guys. She did it. But it is a much, like, more thoughtful and, like, quiet and, like, slow, gradually building movie than any of those things would lead you to believe. I, it, it almost took me to, like, the last 15 minutes to be like, this movie's fucking crazy. Because <laughs> yes. it's so calm. They like gradually turn up the heat uh, the whole time. Where like you don't even recognize just how batshit everything is until you're really like deep into it. Uh, speaking of the sci-fi elements, I really did love the world building. Like there was some really, really great heavy lifting being done early on by sort of the trappings of the world, where you first learn about the bounty on this criminal who's living in the hills, like Ned Kelly or whatever who eventually comes to help the village. Um, and you also learn very quickly about like the public executions that are being televised and like, people taking part in bounty hunting and just sort of a, a very not too distant future next Sunday AD kind of like <laughs> quality to the science fiction elements of it, but realistically presents like, you know, uh, problems with water supply and problems with other kinds of supplies. And especially whenever the medicine is delivered to the town by the mayor and all of the food is expired. And especially all of the medication that they're given is basically just like 
dominers. I don't really. I, I guess they're supposed to be like antidepressants. But I was gonna all say it kind of sounded is, like they were like opioids. Yeah, meant to dull the mind. The doctor just throws them in the trash. Like the rest of the uh, supplies that come in, they have this very like communist method of disbursement where they're like, you know, take what you need, share it. Uh, but the pills in particular, she like throws in the garbage. She's like, take these if you want. <laughs> Fish them out of the trash, but that's where they belong. The first time I watched it, other than, you know, seeing all of these outcast and queer characters just being accepted by the community that they were from, just that's part, they're just part of that world. The mutual aid stuff, you know, that's my bread and butter. So I'm just like, oh, I yeah. love, I love them. <laughs> And I think they did a really good job of showing, like, there's still gripes in the town and people still have to work together to build stuff. And it's still a hard life, but they're taking care of each other. And I I just, I love that. And that's in direct contrast to the capitalists who come into the town, who are there basically paying money to hunt these people for sport and for leisure. And they are at each other's throats at all times and... Whatever the opposite, whatever the antonym to solidarity is, there's just like constant discord between all of them. And uh, the only thing that really unites them is their bloodlust. I don't know. There's a very allegorical feel to the whole setup. Yeah, they got but that. But it's very delayed. That toxic individualism going. Exactly. Yeah. Just the, you know, I, I feel like shooting something that comes through. Said explicitly. Yeah. Or as soon as they murder somebody for the first time, they like immediately want to have sex. <laughs> like yeah. it's very primal um, and gross. Like it's not fun to watch whenever the uh, the villains come in, the white people from out of town mostly. And then you know all that stuff is very delayed. Like Boomer was saying, like it starts off with the world building. I want to say for almost the first half, and then you sort of get the premise, like what the conflict is going to be way late and it just feels so foreign like it really just doesn't feel like a most dangerous game genre picture until like well into the runtime yeah the first time i watched it i went in knowing nothing i just heard amazing things about it and i was like okay okay i'm gonna watch this and yeah it just like jumped right in there and i was like wait what huh <laughs> You know, um, you see the, the first couple of guys get killed and you're like, it's just, excuse me? Is that is that where we're going now? <laughs> it definitely just catches you off guard. There's this presence of like, uh, or a lack of presence of governance to the point where you really don't know what is happening to these people for quite a while. Sure, the mysterious bikers show up in town, but when... The guy comes back with the water truck initially. My thought was he had been shot at by whoever it was that was preventing them from getting to the water in the first place. And it might have been because they're like basically selling this town to tourists as like livestock. Uh, and I think it is the same people that are restricting their like resources that are like selling them out. Okay. I'm guessing. I mean, we don't really meet any of those people besides the mayor, who, who's a joke. Tony Jr.? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that it was the white people because they do say when they're talking in the meeting, like, oh, the, the water truck's been shot. And like, they're trying to instill panic because they think, oh, these are people from Brazil. They live in the middle of nowhere. They just must be like simple savages. And of course, like panic doesn't happen because these people have each other's backs. And it's just an interesting examination of that as well i mean ultimately like they do the savage thing of like displaying their severed heads but at that point it just feels like totally warranted were either of you before watching this aware that the village itself is meant to emulate um i forget the word for this in brazil but there are villages in the hills that are basically comprised of the descendants of runaway slaves or the descendants of people who had ex escaped slavery. I did not I know did that. I did not know that until just now. Oh my gosh. That makes me love this movie even more. Uh, that is what is meant to be implied by the town. Whenever you see in their museum, they have the sort of clippings about, you know, the town itself refusing to be cowed 
uh, Baccarat itself. Putting, they say put down a rebellion. I don't think that the translation in the subtitles is quite right, but apparently resisted some sort of attempt to re-enslave, which is why they, in the past, as seen in the newspaper clippings in the museum, show the severed heads of their captors. And we see them reenact this liberation in the, against their new enslavers in the present day. Are there new attempted enslavers? I thought it was a pretty level-headed response to the stimulus as well. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. a pretty like clear warning that if you fuck around, you will find out. Yeah, and <laughs> it's it, there's something to be said about the fact that when that biker couple comes to town, everybody is like, hey, uh, before you leave, check out the museum. Yeah, and go to like, the no, museum. Oh, yeah. They're like, it's go, very good. Yeah, maybe you should... You should go see the museum. They really do give those people a warning. They're like, hey, why don't you go learn some of the history of this place? And you'll find out that um, we're not going to take that. (laughs) I just love like they had every chance to see the museum to to know. Yeah. But no. What I love about like how that revenge comes to be as well. um, And this is me just thinking of this as like an action film. Like. Lunga, in particular, would have been, like, a Schwarzenegger or, like, a uh, Rambo-type, like, if this were an 80s movie made in America. Yeah. They would have been this, like, soul hero, this big, like, muscle-bound gym freak come in and just, like, annihilate the enemy and save the people. But really, when, like, Lunga comes in with all that arsenal and, like, all this, like, expertise for, like, resistance, they provide support but they don't like do anything exceptionally heroic as opposed to everyone else. Like it is like folded right back into that same like harmony among the rest of the community. And I found that to be like the most striking part of like this whole like solidarity forever vibe in the village. Like there's just something about the fact that they do bring in like this outside hero and they're just another one of the community. Like, Hey, the town needs help. You should join us in arms. And I don't know. I found that to be very, like, striking because the trope is that that's the hero, you know? Like, the trope is that that's, like, the deus ex machina or whatever. And, you know, Lunga has a very, like, hero presence. It's yeah. just, like, the over-the-top, like, presentation, the glam mullet, the gold rings, the velvet, you know, parachute pants. But then it's just another person in the town protecting the town. I do like that they keep her or they keep them gender ambiguous as well. Yes. It is playing off of that macho 80s action star trope, but they use like she pronouns with them a lot, but it's hard to tell if that's a translation thing as well. I I remember reading something from the actor saying they originally cast him as a trans woman and he was not comfortable yeah. with that. So they, they uh, went okay. more like gender fucked. Yeah. Uh, and it's really cool. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's another so like subversion great. of that trope. Yeah, I just love that it's like, hey, come back to town. You've got guns. <laughs> we need you. <laughs> and obviously, like they definitely have organizing and resisting experience. They're just like, okay, we're gonna dig a hole here. <laughs> I think they also have like a certain level of uh, I don't want to say lack of morality, but like maybe uh, lack of squeamishness when it yes. comes to like ultra violence. <laughs> They're like, yeah. uh, they're the one that's willing to chop the head off, you know, yeah. which is a very special skill you need sometimes. Yeah. You, sometimes, sometimes you need the axe. Right. <laughs> I would like to point out something that I've noticed in a lot of the online reviews is that for whatever reason, there's something that people are missing in this movie where the cell phones go out after the biker couple come to town and are clearly putting a, like some kind of like blocker or yeah. jammer yes. in place. But I've seen multiple reviews, and it might just be that there's one review that poisoned the well that mentions that people are like, they're cut off from the outside somehow. And it's like, no, there's a there was an explanatory scene in that. Yeah. So if you're watching if you're listening to this and you've read those reviews and you haven't watched the movie, that's explained. There's nothing inexplicable that happens in here that isn't the result of drugs. Yeah. Well, I think what I was trying to say earlier too, when I was saying like the outside people are, you know, helping or like so- basically sold out this town. I think they also paid the government to remove them from 
the GPS maps. Oh yeah, whatever. yeah. That's okay. That's implied too. I think that yeah, okay. that, suddenly that is they can't find themselves on the map. Yeah, because uh, drone girl. I'm gonna just refer to her as that because they they go through their names, but that's so just like Chad and like Tammy, <laughs> you know, and like I can't keep track of y'all. Yeah, so drone girl is like, yeah, they're off the map. We've taken the signal down. At this time, the power is going to go out. It's just all very intentional. And it's all very like, oh, these rich white people have paid to do this because they can. There's the moment where the outsiders are sort of headed into town and they come across what we have seen earlier, which is near where Lunga was hiding, which are several just abandoned vehicles that have weeds growing through them. And once again, one of them is like, oh, uh, this cop car is full of bullet holes. And Udo Kier is (laughs) like, that doesn't mean anything. We keep going. It's like, no, these people are not going (laughs) to accept like an outside oppressor. Like they are going to murder you and cut your heads off. Well, kill you in self-defense and cut your heads off as a lesson to the others. There's something fascinating about like this movie as told from the point of view of the antagonists has if it were told from the point of view of the antagonists it's like uh it has a whole cabin in the woods thing where they are over and over again ignoring warnings from the villagers ignoring the signs around them (laughs) that they're walking into a trap and i find that fascinating because they clearly cannot perceive themselves as anything other than the protagonists of their own life story right they're just people who work at (laughs) It's a cop, it's a it's a corrections officer, and I think one guy is like a supermarket manager. You know, the few things that we learn about them, they're all people who just like have this need for control. And of course they perceive themselves as the protagonists of their own life stories, when in fact they are basically lambs to the slaughter to the what they thought would be their own prey which is a, a really a really nice turnabout, in my opinion. And it, it's pretty explicitly tied to, like, white supremacy in the film as well. Like, Yeah. Oh, yeah, the whole, you're not white. You look white, Yeah, they have a very prolonged argument with people from Brazil who are white and saying, you're not white, you're from Brazil. Um, and, like, there's a very, like, firmly established hierarchy of whiteness among them that's, like, really gross. Yeah. They're like, no, we are the descendants of colonizers also. And they're like, not the right colonizers, though. You can tell there was miscegenation among your people. It's like, holy shit. And then they also want to distinguish themselves from Nazis and, like, be better than Nazis, which, uh, you know, they are participating in a genocide. Very Trump-era logic. Yeah. Like, oh, we're white people, but we're not Nazis. Very effective villains in that, you know, they're not unreal. Like, these are, like, average western civilization like average joes at least from like white communities and uh the grossest parts of them are exposed and then like punished yeah i think if you've known a large number of white people you know one of these people you've met them you know it's it's not a stretch you work with them you're related to them yeah yeah you avoid going home for the holidays because of them Oh, God. Uh. <laughs> I avoid traveling 20 minutes to another parish to visit them. <laughs> I guess my main thing that I've already kind of touched on it, but it's wild to me that this movie was able to get made in Brazil, current Brazil, you know, where yeah. they basically have their own worse version of Trump. And yeah, I mean, it's just... A fantastic, fantastic spitting in the face of that current, like, regime, I guess, is the best word for what's going on down there. So, yeah, I mean, it's always those arts, that art of resistance that's just super interesting to me as well. And also, it's such a huge part of the language of oppression to be like, what do you mean? We brought you books. We brought you food. We brought you medicine. And then deliberately bring, like, sabotaged materials. That's such an ongoing, like, oppressive tool and colonialist tool to manufacture 
an external appearance of goodwill while continuously actually like presenting an open palm but using to slap someone in the face it's made to look like charity yeah we brought you blankets you know they definitely don't have smallpox in them yeah, we uh we built schools. You definitely can speak your native language there. Yeah. And then they buried the children in mass unmarked graves, which is oh, a very delightful headline that's been making the rounds recently. Yeah. It's the same old story, and I feel like this movie just cuts right through the bullshit in presenting it. You know, we talk about how it's very allegorical, but just the way they literally have a dump truck dump these like ripped apart books is just incredible it's just such a powerful powerful image i guess the one thing that's kind of up in the air for me is like i don't necessarily know where the psychotropic drugs um (laughs) fit into this political scheme other than like i guess they're just kind of in tune with themselves and like very like assured because you don't take drugs when you're like scared (laughs) like they feel very in control and just, like, of peace with the fact that they have to, like, kill another round of, like, intruders. And they're not they're not doing, like, um, like, they explicitly refuse the opioids, right, that we talked yeah. about before, while openly participating in a natural, like, you, you, call, you mentioned, I, I did not realize or identify that they were peyote buttons, but... That's what you that said. That was a guess, right? honestly. Yeah, especially <laughs> given especially given all the plants around, that was that was my guess. It's clearly cultivated by someone who has like a significance within this community where they are the person who cultivates this. Who may or may not garden in the nude. Yes, who definitely <laughs> does. <laughs> but I, you know, it could be something about the freedom of the mind, right? The freedom of the body and the freedom of the mind are two separate things because oftentimes even when your body is imprisoned your mind can be free you know they are not only the uh, descendants of people who outran and outlived slavery but also they're more open with themselves as demonstrated by sort of the nudity there and in other parts of the film and in their, you know, hey, let's take a bunch of peyote buttons and do capoeira in preparation for defending the village from, uh, you know, the white man. You're mentioning that it's supposed to be like based off of people who ran away from slavery. But I also thought maybe it could have been from like an indigenous viewpoint right. as well. Especially yeah, since spiritual. they're yeah, spiritual because they're all in mourning for this funeral. Like, yeah. These people could not have timed their hunt, so to speak, at like a worse point than when everybody is gathered in town because this major figure died. Is there a point in the movie where Udo Kier takes the drug? I don't believe so. They okay. they have to explain to him um, at the end that they are all tripping their balls off. <laughs> right. <laughs> when they're like putting him in the prison, like, we have all taken a very strong drug, <laughs> but you will be punished right now. <laughs> and here's how it's going to work. Yeah, that's very much, it does very much feel like when you're at a party and then you have to explain something to someone who's sober where you're like, cards on the table, I'm very high right now. But <laughs> yes! We still have to have some real talk for a second. Um, he, has a, he has a vision of Carmelita, mm. which is what made me think about it, because it does seem like their peyote buttons are, at least in a way like you said, not related to not what we would call ancestor worship, but maybe just like communion with the dead. Because even when the kids are playing in the dark, whenever the kid is going out into the outer darkness outside of the lights of the village, they're like, be on the lookout for Carmelita. Look out for Maciel. He's out there too. That like, they carry their ancestors with them, right? Which is, again, ties back to the ancestral liberation and the contemporary liberation and how they are mirrors of one another. But I am I am intrigued by the fact that Udo Kier's character, Michael, has a vision of Carmelita as well, especially because we don't... He doesn't seem to take a drug at any point. He's offered the stew by um, Dr. Dominguez, but he doesn't take any of it. He's very rude about refusing it. Yeah! Yeah. She made stew and cashew milk, excuse me? 
Do you think there were people in that stew? Did you think she cooked some of his friends for him? <laughs> and he uh, realized that? You know, I'd never thought maybe that was implied, but... Huh. My guess was like it was supposed to be like a meeting of... Like, she's kind of the de facto matriarch now that yeah, Carmelita. Carmelita is gone. Um, so I thought maybe it was just like a meeting of the minds. Like, you know, before we get into the bloodbath, maybe we could settle this, like, you know, with a meal, which is like a peacemaking offer. Um, I didn't think there was anything nefarious about the stew. I, I thought he was very rude for slapping it to the ground. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> it's like, what an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, indeed. I don't know now, though. I'm like, oh, maybe it was people stew. Because... I don't know if they would have had qualms about eating their oppressors. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't. And uh, part of what is leading me to that uh, inference is that he also does not knock the stew onto the ground until after she puts back her, uh, puts her bloodstained lab coat back on. And she's oh, like, oh, yeah, yeah, your buddies are dead. Okay. I'm also fascinated by Michael's decision to just start killing the others. Like, especially because he... He seems to be the one who, at least as far as he thinks and the way that he presents himself, he's like, oh, I have a moral code. I mean, clearly he doesn't, but he believes himself to because he says he wasn't he won't kill women. And then also, you know, he he finds it disturbing that a child was killed. But then he immediately just starts picking off his own companions. And I wondered what y'all thought of that as a choice. I thought he had just, like, given up. He was like, we were outmatched. Something's off here, and things are about to go down. And he just kind of, like, snaps and just has fun. I don't think he likes the people who are paying him as a tour guide himself. You know, I think he, like, has a disdain for them as well. And just sort of entertains himself in his final minutes by, like, taking his frustration out on them. Yeah, I kind of got the idea that this whole thing was just for him and not... For these rich people that paid him. Like, he is getting to knock them off because nobody will care about them going missing either. Like, none of them are supposed to be there. Like, he has documents saying none of them are there. So, yeah, I just kind of assumed that he sent them out there to pick them off. But I don't think he knew that the town was gonna go wild. Yeah. Tony Jr. completely underestimated what they would be able to do, which is sort of a through line where they are underestimated by people from the city specifically. Because yeah. the, the male biker is like, oh, is it obvious that I'm from Sao Paulo? How did they know? Um, I love that the whole town, the, like they just love to watch this one DJ's TV truck. <laughs> yeah, which is the most sci-fi looking thing besides the uh, UFO is this yeah. like giant iPod player <laughs> that he has and wheels around. Yeah, they just watch YouTube videos and you know it's kind of beautiful. It looks yeah. like a carnival thing. Like it looks like something you would see on like a cart selling like you know Dr. Seuss hats and alien antenna at like a Mardi Gras parade. <laughs> totally does. But it's also like part of their funeral procession, and it's also part yeah. of their like group meetings as a town i think that's like the most impressive thing in general is just how that dj and the like walkabout guitar player and the doctor and the sex workers like they all have a function in the community and they're all like respected for the service they provide yeah it's oddly wholesome for such a violent film i just love the line like whores vote too i was like that's so good <laughs> Yeah, because these people are constantly getting underestimated, which is obviously dead wrong to yeah, do. Yeah, something you do at your own peril. Yeah. I loved that funeral. I uh, just want to throw that out there. Since you brought up the funeral, I think that's one of the, like the most beautiful, like moving parts of the movie. That's one of the first omens you get that stuff is going to get real weird and bad. <laughs> and, you know, the water coming up out of the coffin and in this town that has no access to the water because it's been dammed up and all of these people like ominously like singing out of tune and I don't know it's just like a very it sets the tone that funeral yeah because when Teresa is driving up there in the water truck 
she sees that the truck has crashed like a truck carrying a bunch of coffins she's like well that's weird and of course we know obviously now that they were meant for the victims of this like uh, most dangerous game hunting party but uh, tony jr almost tips his hand too early by getting getting ready right and it's almost like what happens at the end whenever he shows up and the van opens and it's got water bottles and an air-conditioned car waiting for these victorious white colonialist hunters and he's immediately like close the door close the door but the cat's already out of the bag you can't you can't stuff it back in that car yeah the evidence that something is going down is all disconnected and off-putting in an eerie way but like as an audience, I didn't really understand what was happening until it was explicitly laid out separate from the town. So yeah. like uh yeah. watching it slowly dawn on the like assassin character. Um Yeah, it, it, it plants the seeds of its revelation. It does. Early on, but they are they do present simply as eeriness or as alien and unusual in a way that it's not clear that they're all related to one another until everything comes into focus and then you realize and that, i mean that's that's just great storytelling that's the way that the best stories are where everything suddenly makes sense and and comes into focus and this uh this film does that like excellently yeah it's like it's a weirdly subtle like intricate piece for something that again is explosively violent <laughs> and kind of you know plays with like trashy genre tropes it's it's very like oddly serene and like lightly surreal it's a gentle movie it's at some points and like very cathartic when it's not as one final touch that i really enjoyed when they're cleaning out the museum they're like yeah, scrub the blood off of the floors, but leave the blood on the walls. That's our newest exhibit, basically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then the next time that somebody wants to come to town and kill us or put us in chains, we can say, why don't you go to the museum? It's a great museum. You should really check it out. And we'll even have the, the guitar guy come by and be like, hey, lady, listen to my song. It's about how you need to get out of here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's astonishing like to me how often all of these outside people are so rude like if i went to a small town and they asked me to go to a museum i'm like oh yeah i'll check I that out minutes. yeah yeah <laughs> so it's just like from the get-go it's like you guys are bad news you're all bad news i do love their ridiculous sao paulo uh hobbyist biker outfits those yes. like jazz cups <laughs> they <laughs> very won't beautiful. even try the local soda it's like what's that in the green bottle it's like a local soda do you want some no Ew. No. And they asked the little kid, what do you call people from back around? He's like, people. people. Yes. <laughs> that's like one of my favorite exchanges. Because it, you know, that's the movie. Well, we did talk about this before um, last year when we did our best of the year stuff. This was on our top 10 for last year. But we never got to go this deep into it. Uh, so I appreciated this opportunity. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that we all love it as much as I do. Because there's nothing, nothing sadder than gushing about a movie and people being like, oh, well, yeah. Don't bring any musicals to the table. That's my uh, apparently. <laughs> ominous warning. <laughs> apparently, no musicals. Well, it, it, that's not, that's not all. I know, true. I'm, I'm elbowing <laughs> your ribs a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> I will link our best of the year list again in the show notes for this. Why not? This was on there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And I think um, that's actually like a good tie-in for our next episode, too. We're going to go back to 2020 and watch some sort of like blind spots, like some like best of the year stuff that we didn't see until after all this list-making ritual was wrapped up. Oh, will you be watching His House? I watched His House last year. That made our top 10 as well. Oh, okay. Which you can see in the show notes. Number 10. (laughs) Uh, I picked Pinocchio. Okay. <laughs> Which was an Oscar nominated live action adaptation of a very familiar story. I mean, you you sold me on it. It's so beautifully fucked up. I, I recommend that. And uh James actually picked a movie I think Boomer would like a lot, um, called The Empty Man. I don't know if you've seen that one yet. No, I haven't. I wouldn't say that they're similar in what they're doing necessarily, but it reminded me a lot of Doctor Sleep. In seeing a long 
ambitious head fuck of a modern mainstream horror film. Like it really okay. like takes its time and does weird stuff, but it kind of looks like you would expect it to be like a PG thirteen like um, on the surface kind of like mainstream horror. Um, so I think you would enjoy it. Okay. I'd be surprised if you were, had like a negative reaction to it, but it, yes, it has been man. very divisive among other people. So like maybe I shouldn't be surprised. I think you know it's a love it or hate it kind of proposition. All right, I'm intrigued. So we'll be getting into the empty man next episode. Well, he did need something inside him. <laughs> yes, <laughs> four of us will be climbing inside the empty man. See if we can fill that void. No promises. Nighthawk. Nighthawk. What? What is that? That's what Baccarat means. <laughs> oh yeah, that is a good. That's a good moment. I actually went camping up here and heard a nighthawk at one point. It was pretty cool. Well, it made me think once again. I mean, it it is you know of course relevant to the movie because the the lady biker is like, oh, those are extinct, right? <laughs> the woman in town is like, not around here. They're not. It comes out at night. Be warned. <laughs> Get back on your bike and leave. They really, they really do give them more than enough chances to just leave. They set clear boundaries. Yeah. Which is, do not cross any of our boundaries. Stay the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.